This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. Every weekend, we talk with the journalists behind the best stories on Apple News+. Plus. Today on In Conversation, we're talking with Ari Berman. He's a senior reporter at Mother Jones, where he covers voting rights. The 2020 elections saw historic turnout. Both Joe Biden and Donald Trump received more votes than any other candidate in U.S. history. But since then, 14 states have passed legislation that make it harder to vote— And there's a concern that the weight of these new laws will fall hardest on Black voters. Berman's article in Mother Jones is called Facing Down Jim Crow Again. You can read and listen to it on Apple News with an Apple News Plus subscription. Berman says this story is not new. It's one that's deeply ingrained in the history of the United States. The mass enfranchisement of Black voters followed by attempts to take the vote away. I asked Berman to connect these dots from past to present. You know, one thing you do very effectively in this piece um, is you lay out the history of threats on voting rights, particularly for Black Americans, and you start with Reconstruction. What was that time like, and what changed in the period that came after? There was this incredible period in American history during Reconstruction where we had multiracial government for the first time in the United States. I believe that was the first time America was really a true democracy because for so many years people were locked out of the democratic process and you had former slaves in the South get the right to vote and you had black men vote in record numbers and you had Black senators and congressmen and lieutenant governors and secretaries of state and all of these high-ranking positions in places like Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama that had been ruled solely by white people since the founding of the country. So it was an incredible period in American history, but it was a very brief period because there was a vicious white backlash. And what happened was, first, there were attempts at violence and intimidation and fraud to try to keep Black voters from the polls. And then the laws were changed once segregationists got back in power to prevent Blacks from voting through things like literacy tests and poll taxes and property requirements. And that lasted for a very long time, all the way up to 1965, when the country passed the Voting Rights Act to get rid of those voter suppression devices. Mm. At the time, there was so much representation. There were Black legislators in office, and they were forced out of office during this time, right? How did that happen? There was this remarkable scene that I tell in the story in Georgia. In 1868, you have 33 Black members of the legislature elected for the first time. The state had passed a constitution that said Black men had the right to vote for the first time. In the state of Georgia, right? In the state of Georgia, Mm -hmm. yes. And the same thing was happening across the South, that all across the South, new constitutions were being written that essentially gave former slaves the right to vote. Black men got the right to vote. And so there were 33 new members of the Georgia legislature who were Black. However, that same constitution did not say that Blacks had 
the right to hold office. Everyone assumed they had that right, because why would you give someone the right to vote but not the right to hold office? But what happened is when these Black members got to the legislature, the white members of the legislature, who were still a majority, they joined forces, both Democrats and Republicans, to expel the Black members of the legislature. And the Black members of the legislature in Georgia couldn't even vote on their dismissal. Mm. So it was this incredible thing. You had a new constitution giving Black men the right to vote. You had Black men elected to the legislature. And within a year, they were all kicked out. Mm. And that really was the beginning of the end of Reconstruction and of multiracial government, not just in Georgia, but eventually across the South. Yeah. So how was Georgia used as a blueprint for other states that were trying to disenfranchise Black voters? Well, other states looked at Georgia and they said, first off, they were able to kick the Black members of the legislature out of the legislature. Then they were able to use violence from the Ku Klux Klan, things like intimidation, to keep them from voting. There were massacres. There, shortly after Black members of the legislature were expelled, there was a march in Southwest Georgia in a town called Camilla, and whites opened fire and killed at least 12 Black marchers. And that kind of thing reverberated across the South. So they expelled the, the Black members of the legislature. They followed it up with violence. Then they began passing things like poll taxes, stuff like that, that theoretically applied to all voters, but fell most harshly on Black voters. And that was basically replicated across the South. So, so far, a lot of what you're describing is happening at the state level. What was happening at the federal level? What was happening at the federal level was there was this debate about what the Congress should do about Mm -hmm. disenfranchisement of the South. And in 1888, Republicans, who were then the party of civil rights, the parties basically flipped later on. But back then, Republicans are the party of civil rights. Democrats are the party of white supremacy. And Republicans take control of the Congress in 1888 for the first time uh, since the uh, end of Reconstruction. And they introduce a bill that would have federal supervision of elections that essentially would give them the power to go into places like Mississippi and Georgia and to make sure that people can vote and that elections aren't fraudulent. And it passes the House, but in the Senate, it's filibustered by Democrats. And then eventually, a small number of Republicans join with Democrats to kill this bill. And basically, that's the last major effort to try to protect voting rights at the end of Reconstruction. And the South is essentially on its own in terms of how they want to run their elections. I want to jump a little bit ahead, but I, I know you're going to keep on connecting the dots for us to back in our, our in our history. But just to jump ahead to 2020, I mean, we saw record voter turnout in the 2020 election, including among people of color, even in places like Texas, where state Democrats say that the laws there suppressed turnout. How does this fall in line with what we've seen historically? What's so interesting now is that the same pattern that we saw at the end of Reconstruction is repeating itself today, which is that you have increased turnout 
from new demographic groups. That's followed by an attempt to try to overturn or sway elections through essentially extra legal means, violence, fraud, intimidation. We saw that at the end of Reconstruction, and we saw that in 2020 with the attempt to throw out votes, pressure election officials, and ultimately the insurrection. Then that's followed by attempts to try to legally change laws to try to achieve the same kind of outcome. The things that are passed now, they're not as bad as a literacy test. They're not as bad as a poll tax. But when I pose this question to a Yale University historian, David Blight, who's written a great biography of Frederick Douglass, he said, listen, it's not the same, but the goal is try to reduce Black turnout by 5 to 10%, and you can once again win Georgia. So it's kind of like old poison and new bottles in terms of what they're trying to do here. Like you said earlier, just sort of knocking off a couple of percentage points might be all that's needed in those cases. Absolutely. I mean, because Georgia was decided by about 11,780 votes. Uh, Arizona was decided by about 10,000 votes. Wisconsin was decided by 20,000 votes. I mean, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by 7 million votes, but he only lost the Electoral College in three states by 45,000 votes. So, I mean, if Republicans had been able to flip 45,000 votes in three states, Trump would have still been in office, and he wouldn't have needed to try to overturn the election or incite an insurrection. And so it doesn't take much to change the outcome. Ari, you wrote in this piece a warning. You're telling people, don't believe what the Republicans are saying here, that these laws are race-blind, that they're not intended to suppress voting, that this is all about election security and protecting the vote. Why are you issuing this warning? Well, because I think it's clear what the purpose of these laws were. First off, they followed an attempt to try to overturn the election, and they followed a lot of lies about the election. And then when Republican state officials came to session in 2021, they basically legislated based on those lies that Donald Trump told. They attacked the very things that Donald Trump was complaining about. They rolled back mail voting. They eliminated or curtailed mail ballot drop boxes. They increased access for partisan poll watchers. In some cases, they even made it easier for Republican officials to overturn or not certify elections. And if you look at the impact of these laws, by and large, the impact is going to be felt the most in large urban areas represented by Democrats in places like Houston and Texas or places like Atlanta uh, in Georgia. And so they don't have to come out and say the purpose of these laws is to disenfranchise African Americans. Jim Crow laws never said that either. Jim Crow laws never mentioned race. But everyone knew the purpose of a literacy test, the purpose of a poll tax, was to disenfranchise Black voters. And I think it's clear if you look at the data that the laws being passed now are going to have a disproportionate attempt on communities of color in large urban areas that tend to favor Democrats. Mm. You write in this piece, what was true then is still true today, that Congress has the power to stop the disenfranchisement of Black voters. What did congressional power look like in the past? And what does it look like now? I mean, it was Congress that passed the 15th Amendment, eliminating racial discrimination in voting. It had to be ratified in the states, but it was an effort that began in Congress. Congress was the body that passed the Voting Rights Act. It had to be signed by a president, but again, the effort originated in Congress. So at key moments in our history, Congress has stepped in to 
exercise federal power over elections and to say that it's not right in a democracy for people to be disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at a similar moment today. And the question is, is Congress going to respond to all the voter suppression efforts in the states? Or is Congress going to do nothing and allow the states to do whatever they want in terms of disenfranchising voters? And if that is the case, then I think there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable parallels between things that happened back then and things that are happening now, which is not to say we're going to see widespread voter suppression, but we're going to see more voter suppression and lower voter turnout and attempts by one party to change election rules when they don't feel like they benefit them. Let's talk about the For the People Act, because there are a few different perspectives on it. What do you think? I think that it has a lot of policies that would expand access for millions of Americans. And I think those are popular policies. If you ask people, do you like things like automatic and election day registration? Do you like early voting? Do you like access to mail ballots? Those kind of things, those are very popular policies. Despite the demonization of the bill, a lot of Republican voters like those kind of things. And those are policies that have been adopted by a lot of Republican-controlled states. In fact, Georgia has automatic registration. Utah has universal mail voting. Even Texas, a state that's very hard to vote, has two weeks of early voting. So the For the People Act pulls from lots of policies that have already been adopted with great success in Republican-controlled states. And again, I think there's just something wrong when you have a bill that's supported by 70% of Americans and policies that have worked really well at the state level. And it can't even get a majority of support among Democrats, let alone clear a Republican filibuster. Mm. It seems like at some point in our history, the filibuster got rebranded as a tool for compromise, as an important part of our checks and balances system. Is that ever what it was about? Or is there some misconception about the integrity of the filibuster? There's a lot of misconceptions about the filibuster. The filibuster really emerged as a tool to protect white supremacy. It was used by Southern members of Congress to keep the architecture of Jim Crow to try to prevent voting rights legislation from passing, to try to keep the poll tax, to try to prevent anti-lynching laws. That's when you really started seeing the popularity of the filibuster, the filibuster being used in large numbers. I talk about the fact that when a, a Southern filibuster killed efforts to try to protect voting rights in 1890, it was the first time that you had a bill that was supported by a majority of Congress and the president, but was killed by a Southern-led filibuster. And they just started doing that on a regular basis. But the point is, is that the filibuster is not in the Constitution. Uh, It was never really used to broker bipartisan compromise. I would argue that the filibuster actually works against bipartisanship. And I'll give you an example. The vote for the January 6th commission, you had 54 senators both Republicans and Democrats who voted for the commission, but it was blocked by 35 Republican senators. So one party who was outnumbered was able to block something that was favored by a majority of senators and members of both parties. So that was actually an example of the filibuster leading to an outcome where partisanship trumped bipartisanship. And I think that's what happens more often than not with a filibuster. You said earlier that during Reconstruction, that brief moment when participation was really high among Black Americans, was sort of the first time that America was a true democracy. That's what you said earlier. 
Is America a true democracy today by your standards? And if not, what is the difference? What would get us there? It's a true democracy, but democratic norms are receding, meaning that the fact that we're even talking about the ability to overturn an election, we're even talking about an insurrection at the Capitol. These are stark examples that democratic norms are receding in this country, uh, that we used to have bipartisan agreement that everyone should be able to vote. We used to have bipartisan agreement that we needed a strong Voting Rights Act. We used to have bipartisan agreement that you would certify the winner of the election. All of those things are breaking down right now. I think this needs to be a wake-up call to people to not become complacent about our political system. And I think what Reconstruction shows is that rights can be taken away. And once they're taken away, it's very hard to get them back. And so I think that's a history that we really need to keep in mind right now. We are once again seeing an assault on democracy and an assault on democratic norms. You know, this weekend um, is Juneteenth, and it's really a mark of progress in this country. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. You know, how do you hold these two things in your mind at the same time, sort of celebrating progress made, but also thinking about the forces that are trying to limit that progress? I think that duality is part of American history from the very beginning. The fact that our Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal— but not all men and not all women were given the right to vote. I mean, so those contradictions are present in American history from the very beginning, and they continue to be present today, where we have, for example, a lot more awareness of things like race, a lot more awareness of social injustice, a lot of popular movements that are trying to create a fair, more inclusive society. But then we also have a vicious white backlash against those kind of things. So those kind of things go hand in hand. And I think as the country becomes more diverse. I believe that we are going to see the country also become more reactionary at the same time. And, and that is one of the lessons of Reconstruction, that when some new people get power, that threatens existing power dynamics. And sometimes people are able to adapt and live together, and sometimes one side really resents the power that another side gains. And I believe we are at that moment right now when things like the right to vote that you'd like to see just general agreement are, are going to remain very contested. Mm. Ari Berman, thank you so much for drawing these lines through our history for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to talk with you. Berman's article on voting rights is available for Apple News Plus subscribers iPhone users can subscribe in the Apple News app. 